according to His promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We are once again in Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1 this morning, but we are going to move on to verse 5 and following and gain some ground here this morning. A couple weeks ago, I thought we tied together the last uh, verses 1 through 4 fairly well. Of course, you can go back and spend 100 years in verses 1 through 4 and not exhaust the depths of the things that are there. We have the celebrity of Jesus Christ, and it gets introduced, it gets uh, proclaimed, it launches the entire book of Hebrews in these first four verses, and then it gets proven again and again and again and again and again. And there are certain pastors, there are certain apostles, Bible teachers, they like to make a point and give you a verse to prove it, or two verses to prove it, or 355 verses to prove it. And I think the author of Hebrews is one of those. Because you'll notice, as we look through here in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? That's an Old Testament quotation. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. That's a different Old Testament quotation. Two separate passages of the Old Testament that are combined together in one New Testament verse that are blended by Luke, or whoever the author of Hebrews is, in, uh, in this text. And uh, in verse 6, in fact, most of the modern Bible pu- published uh, Bibles today will probably have a separate typeface, a separate a way to, to set it apart, either in all caps or some kind of uh, indentation, or some way to let you know that it is an Old Testament quotation. And you'll see that. Verse 6, when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. That's an Old Testament quotation. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Another Old Testament quotation. Many of these from Psalms, all right? And we gave a lot of this in the introduction to the book as we were introducing the book of Hebrews. It has more Old Testament quotes than almost any other book of our New Testament, all right? In, uh, in a very powerful way. So uh, I realize a lot of folks were breathing a sigh of relief when we survived Isaiah and we survived Jeremiah and when we announced Hebrews and, and then folks were all excited for the book of Hebrews and they said, yes, I've been waiting to get into a New Testament book. Well, we are in a New Testament book that's filled with Old Testament quotations. And there's a purpose for tying together the Old and the New together in the way that the author of Hebrews does. Because it shows that the church age is not a replacement for Israel. The church is not a replacement for the, for the Old Testament. That it is an unfolding, that it is a development, and that it is headed for something beyond the church in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And then ultimately in the new heavens and the new earth for a thousand generations after the thousand years. So uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be good. We've got a lot in front of us and a lot to cover. Before we do, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Let's ask the Father to sanctify our thinking, to set aside distractions, to drive Scrabble and other things out of our thinking, to put us back into a sanctified mode. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you, thankful for your faithfulness, thankful, Father, for the, uh, the way that you open our eyes to truth. I thank you for the ears to hear. They're not our ears, they're your ears. You've given them to us. You've provided all things necessary for life and godliness. It is joy unspeakable and full of glory. Who are we that we should have these, uh, these infinite blessings in Christ? And Father, yet here we are rejoicing in what you provided and humble before you. Teach us, lead us, open our eyes. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name we do pray. Amen. It is good to be back. Thank you so much for letting me go away for a week and good to be back. And I felt like a pagan last week. (laughs) Skipping church and uh, forgetting that it was even Sunday until almost the end of the day and, and that had some guilt-ridden Catholics that raced out and, and had a, a kind of a late-night mass to end their Saturday or Sunday. And uh, so they did get mass in before, before the day was over. But 
Um, I didn't have that kind of guilt. I just thanked the Lord for the, <laughs> the time off and moved on into Monday. But thankful for, uh, for Bob the Son covering for me, for Lewis covering for me Wednesday night, and, uh, and the blessings there. All right. So uh, we have the, um, and I need to get my uh, thing switched over here, the, uh, the, the prologue. We have the prologue. I'll switch this so I can advance slides without going one by one. We have the prologue in verses 1 through 4, and this is the glory of Jesus Christ. It's His pre-incarnate glory. It's what He's done throughout the ages. He's the creator of the ages. Let's read it one more time. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, or in the last of these days, has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And so this is a big deal. God spoke, now He has spoken. And we have uh, the many portions in many ways, now we have the one, the one greatest of them all, the one, the one that was unlike any other speaker ever, His Son, the heir of all things, through whom also He made the ages, the Ionos. And He, that one, is the radiance of His glory, that is the visible glory that arrives from the invisible source. He is the exact representation of His nature, and He upholds all things by the word of His power. The creator of everything, the upholder of everything, the sustainer of everything, this is a big deal. This is the centerpiece of Scripture. This is the essence of the entire plan of God from Alpha to Omega being summarized in this prologue. When He made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He accomplished something, right? Last hour we were talking about progress. We were talking about achievement and accomplishment. And that's what our Savior did. When Jesus Christ came to this earth, He accomplished something. And then He returned with His Father's right hand. And He is now seated at the Father's right hand. But He is not done. He is coming back again. And the very same faithfulness that accomplished what He accomplished at first advent, it will be that same faithfulness that's going to come back at second advent. And, And He is faithful and true as He sits on the horse and He comes back to conquer and as He comes back to rule. So when He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels. We have three or four full chapters here that are all centered on angels. All right. In fact, definitely the first two chapters before we ever get to anything related to Moses in the Old Testament, anything related to the law or Moses or the Jewish people in chapter 3, we've got angels in the contrast here with what uh, the Son of God did that no angel could do or even wanted to do in, uh, in the angelity past. We're going to talk about that. Having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. All right, so that's what the author of Hebrews here wants to leave you with at the end of his introduction, at the end of his prologue, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that God the Son walked this earth, and that He accomplished what the Father sent for Him to do. He made purification for sins, purpose of His first advent. He made purification for sins. He returned back to the Father's throne, and He was given a name, and He was commanded, He was invited to take His seat. And he takes that seat on the basis of being much better than the angels. He has inherited a more excellent name than they. And so in his first advent incarnation, the summary statement is his superiority over the angels. He accomplished what they did not. He, what, and what he accomplished remedied or resolved what they rebelled against. We discussed many times in the nature of the angelic conflict, why are there humans? (laughs) Why are we here? And why did angels precede humans? What is the destiny of angelity? What is the destiny of humanity? Why is it that God the Son is the God-man, not the God-angel? See, angel of the Lord had a purpose, but it wasn't the angel of the Lord that went to the cross. It was the God-man who went to the cross. All right, we want to be clear on that. And so the, the summary of this is... Uh, having become as much better than the angels. There's nothing here about Mosaic Law. There's nothing here about Israel, the Jewish people. There's nothing here about any of that. 
He made purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Do not get ahead of yourself. Do not get ahead of the author. Do not jump into chapter 3 with his superiority over Moses and bring that back and inject it into the earlier chapters. That's anachronistic and it's wrong. All right. We are going to have plenty of chapters that are going to deal with his superior priesthood. Yes, his priesthood in Melchizedek is more superior than the priesthood of Aaron. Yes, all of that is true. But we'll get to that when we get to that. It's not in chapter 1. It's not in chapter 2. Okay? And we're going to be clear as we work our way through. And so then when we get to verse 4, I'm sorry, we get to verse 5, we start to have the proof, right? The proof text, the, uh, the, the demonstration of, well, of course it's this way. It's always been this way. It should not be a shocker. If you had eyes to see and ears to hear back in the Old Testament, you would have expected this, perhaps, okay? Church would not, you would not have expected, but the glory of Christ you should have expected. The glory of the coming Messiah you should have expected. Because that was not mystery doctrine. That was revealed to the prophets in many portions and in many ways. All right. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. There are, there are sonship principles between the father and the son that go to the core of, of the Trinity, the core of who God is, who the father is, who the, who the son is, and even who the Holy Spirit is as he steps into the background and spotlights the other two. He's thrilled to do so. Because that dynamic between the Father and the Son is the dynamic that is central to everything, to us and humanity, to the generations of humanity for a thousand generations of Father to Son of those who are going to glorify Jesus Christ. So pay attention. But also, by the way, you ever study Antichrist? You ever do a study in 1 John to understand what Antichrist is all about? He who denies the Father and the Son. This is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. All right, so uh, stay tuned for some studies there. Let me get ahead here to what we're dealing with. It's that slide there. How about that? (laughs) It works. All right. So the great prologue with the eternal centrality of Jesus Christ is now proven conclusively through a systematic, comprehensive Old Testament panorama. We're going to have verse after verse after verse after verse. And they're going to be put together in a specific order. They're going to be put together in ways that we might not expect. You know, we'll have a psalm from here combined with a psalm from there, combined with a portion of Torah, combined with uh, 1 Samuel or, or maybe Chronicles, all right? And they're all going to come together in, into a tapestry as they're going to be woven together, right? As threads of a tapestry are woven together. And the author here, as he does this, he puts these threads together and he shows that that, that comprehensive, systematic Old Testament message was proclaiming the coming glories of Jesus Christ. And so we'll see this here. Verses 5 through 14, verse after verse after verse after verse after verse. Spelling these things out. Although the highest of angelic beings are called collectively sons of God, not one created angel is ever addressed as a begotten son. Remember, there's different ways to become sons. The angels are not begotten sons. They are created sons. You can be begotten as a son. You can be adopted as a son. We're both in the church age. You can, uh, you can, have, you can acquire sonship by other means. Creation is one. The angels are sons of God. The highest of the angelic beings are sons of God. It says, to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son? Now, if we ended the verse there, we could could object. Because there are angels that are called sons of God. But we don't end the verse there. And the, the statement of intimacy builds on that. To, uh, to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten thee. Happy birthday, son. Okay, Today is the day of your begetting. Now this is clearly something powerful. This is something that, um, you know, when, when a human begets a child, 
there's a conception stage, and then nine months later there's a birthing stage, and then you can talk to that child on the first day, uh, but they're not going to know what you're talking about. <laughs> okay, uh, they're going to just you know drool and 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 whatever babies do, right? But there is a dynamic here with a father who communicating to his son and making promises and the acceptance of that role. Because it goes on, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. There are prophecies of this coming son. And the son is, is completely on board with the father's program. And we'll see this. We're going to see how these passages come together to describe this. And the Old Testament is full of this. The Old Testament paints this in the doctrine. It paints this in the narrative, in the stories. You know, Abraham and Isaac walked up that mountain together. And Isaac carried the wood as Abraham and Isaac walked up that mountain together. Okay? That dynamic between the father and the son is vital. And uh, we'll take a look at this. All right. So to which of the angels, hypothetical question or rhetorical question rather, none of them specifically none of them, especially not the one who said that he was the best, okay? There's one out there in particular, Satan, we call him. He had other names, okay? Chotham Takanith. He had names before he fell. And Satan, who felt that he was the greatest, who felt that he was entitled to a particular seat, he's not entitled to that seat, all right? Not entitled at all to that seat. So, Let's take a look at it. Are we familiar with the Old Testament sons of God? I don't want to waste, not waste, I don't want to spend the bulk of the time here this morning on this, if in fact we're familiar with it. But uh, from Genesis 6 to Deuteronomy 32 to Job to Psalms, we have several angelic references where sons of God are angels. And uh, that's, that's undeniable, all right? From uh, Genesis 6, when they uh, are making babies with human women, we see them here. Genesis 6, it came about when men, that's humanity, began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God, this is angelity, okay, these are angels, saw that the daughters of men, the human women, were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. And uh, verse 4 says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Also afterward, when the sons of God, those are the angels, uh, came in to the daughters of men and bore children to them, the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And so this is the, the, the demigods of, of Greek mythology and other mythologies. This is the, the um, legends of, of Zeus and, and birthing uh, Hercules, the demigod, and things of that nature that uh, the hybrids of angels and humans were indeed so large and so giant like Goliath and, and uh, they made human beings look like grasshoppers in their sight. Pay attention to the fact in verse 4 it says they were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. That's so important because the flood, Noah's flood, kills all these guys. All of these guys in Genesis 6 are killed in the flood. Only Noah and his family survived the flood. But they come back to the earth again in, in Deuteronomy. They come back to the earth again in Joshua. They come back to the earth again. Uh, David has to fight a giant, right? And several giants in his lifetime in 1 Samuel. So how do the Nephilim return if they were killed in all the flood, right? If they were all killed in the flood? Well, this verse tells us. Because if you want to make a Nephilim, all you need is an angelic father and a human mother. And there you go. The hybrid offspring is going to be the Nephilim. And that's the, the process there. Um, the Deuteronomy reference uh, we can turn to, but it's going to be harder to spot in the English uh, because uh, our English Bibles follow the Hebrew manuscripts, whereas it's the Septuagint of Deuteronomy 32 that includes the sons of God in that. And I think the Septuagint is more accurate than the Masoretic text for recording that verse in any event. But let's go to Job, Job 1 and Job 2. Again, it's sons of God. And in Job 1.6, we're told, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. See? And I think the language is Satan wasn't expected to be there, but he crashed the party. He, he showed up, barging in where he wasn't entitled to be, but you know, acted like he was there and, and had every right to be. 
But uh, the sons of God, they come and they report. And God asks questions and he gets information from them. And he tests them as to what they're learning based on what they're observing. And uh, then it repeats itself in chapter 2. And I love this. This whole background here on Job. Have you considered my servant Job? Oh yeah, you bet he did. He knew all about him. Have you considered my servant Job? That's one eight. And uh, Satan answered, does Job fear God for nothing? He knows all about Job. He's been exploring Job for a long, long time. Chapter 2, again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. So these are all references to the angelic realm. In chapter 38 and verse 7, the sons of God sing when they see the earth created. In the, uh, the great, where were you, Job, when I did all this chapter? Where were you? Since you, since you, you, you appear to be a know-it-all, then uh, teach me what you know, <laughs> okay? Gird up your loins like a man, I will ask you and you will instruct me. This is God's sarcasm, which I love, okay? I can, I can eat this up. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Now keep in mind, the father did have a very special son with him when he did all this. And we learned this in Proverbs chapter 8, all right? Because of the humanity of his son and the, and the birthing of his son. And it wasn't Job, it was Jesus. So uh, where were you when I did this? Where were you when I did that? Where were you when I did this? When, verse 7, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. You ever done something that was just so amazing that a whole crowd of people started singing a song about it? Okay? Me either. All right? But I can imagine. Okay? And here's God. See, and, and the appearance is, is that the earth was the last, the finishing touch of the, of the universe. That the whole, all the galaxies, the whole physical universe, all the dimensions of space and time and all of physical existence was brought about, except something was missing, right? It's like God, you know, Eve, Eve was missing. God, God likes to create things and leave one thing left, one little finishing touch so that Adam can look around and say, um, this is not good, I'm, I'm alone, right? And God makes Eve. Same thing, I believe, with the universe and planet Earth. The angels are looking around and there's, there's something missing. So God says, hey, watch this. And, and they watch and they sing. The morning stars and the sons of God in uh, this marvelous verse here. So, yes, uh, into, uh, collectively, collectively, a classification of angels. I believe it's the highest of all the classifications of spirit beings that we call angels the highest of those angels are called the Beneha Elohim, the, the sons of God, okay? as a class, as a collective group. An individual one within that class could also be called a son of God individually, yes, but none of them are ever addressed specifically with a declaration of their begetting because none of them were begotten. Not one of them was begotten. All of them were created, and that's the point. And because they're created, guess what? They were created by the begotten one. That's the point. The begotten one is that one uncreated. He is the eternal son of God, eternally begotten by the Father, and he's the creator of all that has been created. Psalm 29.1. Now we start to get into some of the deeper psalms and some of these maybe we're not as familiar with. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. That O sons of the mighty is the B'nai Elim, Right? A, a form of B'nai Elohim. B'nai Elim, the sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in holy array. And so when the angels are called to worship, they're specifically called to worship commensurate to the worthiness of His name. Don't lose sight of that. In fact, jot yourself a note. Because that name... He already has a name that is worthy of angelic worship in Psalm 29 too, but he receives an even greater name in Hebrews, right? As the victory on the cross and as the cleansing for sin. And when he's seated at the Father's right hand, he inherits a more excellent name. And now they're really called to worship. So pay attention to that. Psalm 89. Psalm 89. One of the deepest psalms and one that gets avoided. 
You know, in the tendency of our generation to avoid all things angelic, um, I can imagine that Psalm 89 never gets preached. Ever. And on that basis then, I think um, it also facilitates for replacement theology to worm in, because this psalm says God cannot lie to David. Other things that happen here. So, um, Psalm 89, a masculine of Ethan the Ezraite. I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever to all generations. What's that? That's humanity. Okay? Angelity doesn't have generations. Angelity is just one great big class of angels that were all created. Um, to all generations I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said, loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. I have made my covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. This is a great Davidic psalm and it goes on to address the angels. So we have the seed of David, that's Jesus Christ. We have the personal promise to him and the covenant that is here. But we also have the seed and the generations. So verse 5 says, The heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. And what's remarkable is the angels get to sing, but they get to sing on our behalf. Elect angels get to sing on our behalf. We have songs they cannot sing. You understand that? Because they're not, they're not the prodigal, the younger brother that was restored. They're the older brother that never left the father's house. The elect angels have always been in the Father's house. They never departed, but humanity departed. And then humanity was redeemed. And humanity was reconciled. And humanity is brought back. And the Father's willing to slay the fatted calf. The older brother grumbles. Okay, That's in the parable. The elect, uh, the elect angels, I don't believe, grumble, but the fallen angels certainly do. Okay. Now, The heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. This is where uh, Michael Heiser gets the the doctrine of the divine council right here and in Deuteronomy and other places. The uh, assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? This is the the answer. This is the jeopardy question behind I I will be like the most high God, right? Uh, Satan and his five I wills. This is the jeopardy question that rebukes that. Who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the B'nai Ha'elohim, the sons of the mighty, is like the Lord? Yes, there are sons of God that are angelic beings, but none of them are like Yahweh. None of them are like Jesus Christ. None of them are like the God-man, that is, the begotten Son of God. A God greatly to be feared in the counsel of His holy ones and awesome above all those who are around Him. And it goes on. This whole psalm is filled with uh, the heavens and, and this. This is, uh, let me just give you some clues here. I don't want to get lost in this psalm, but um, verse 10 when it says, you yourself crushed Rahab, that's not the harlot of Jericho. Okay? That's a, that's a poetic name for Satan. Spelled differently in the Hebrew. It's unfortunate that it's spelled in English like Rahab the harlot. Um, it's, it's, it's Rahab. It's the, it's the wide one. It's the boastful one. It's Satan. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all it contains, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. That's Tabor and Hermon. And, and uh, that uh, Satan wanted that seat in the north. He wanted to sit in the seat in the recesses of the north. That's the right hand, not his seat. All right. Well, You'll notice verse 19 of Psalm 89. Oh, I can spend this whole time here. Once you've spoken a vision to your godly ones and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. Now this, this is a message he's spoken to the angels promising help. The book of Hebrews is going to ask, to whom does he give help? Does he give help to the angels? Or is he giving help to the descendants of Abraham? Okay? To those that respond by faith to the promises of God. And then he says, um, talks about my servant David 
And, uh, of course, he's speaking through David about Christ. He will cry to me in verse 26, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest in the kings of the earth. Pay attention, by the way, if you encounter a uh, replacement theology person, look at verse 35. Once I have sworn in my holiness, I will not lie to David. Take that verse, underline it, highlight it, write it down, put it on business cards. And the next time somebody tells you that the church has replaced Israel, hand them that business card. And said, if God can lie to David, then God can lie to you and you don't have eternal life. How about that? <laughs> okay? You know, if he can replace, if, if, if God can replace Israel with the church, then what's to stop him from replacing the church with something better? Say, God's not a liar. God's made eternal promises. Israel has a future. The throne of David has a future. And there it is. All right, well, there's more there, but it's all centered on angels in heaven, and we've got to let that go. So, although the highest of angelic beings are called collectively sons of God, not one created angel is ever addressed as a begotten son. In fact, specifically, um, angels are spoken to of their creation, and they're told to remember their creation day. You know, an angel can remember his creation day. None of us can remember our birthday, right? We might remember our fourth birthday or our fifth birthday or one of those early birthdays, but we don't remember the actual day of our birth. Am I wrong? <laughs> Call me a liar, okay? All right. But Psalm 2-7 and the power of that. Now, when you go to Ezekiel 28... I won't spend a lot of time on this either, but the, the, the emphasis is being made there, so I want to make it. In Ezekiel 28, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Limitations, Ezekiel. Notice uh, you had the seal of perfection, as it says here. I believe that's a proper name, Chotham Taknith. This is uh, Ezekiel 28 and verse 12. Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you, Chotham Takanith, the sealer of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. And he starts to rebuke this person. This person's not a human being. He's called a cherub. He is not a human being. He has gems instead of hair and skin. You, Chotham Takanith, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. If this is a human being, it's got to be Adam or Eve because they're the only human beings that were ever in Eden, the garden of God. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper. Look at those gems. Lapis lazuli, the turquoise, the emerald, the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. How beautiful was this dragon? Beautiful. Gem-encrusted, gleaming, glorious, wealthy. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. This being is not a, a begotten being. This being is a created being. That's important. And it's called specifically a cherub. You are the Messiah cherub who covers, and I placed you there. So we have doctrines of Messiah and doctrines of atonement and covering and, and guarding and placement. When you're created, you're placed. That's what happens here. Uh, verse 15, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. So here's the, And all the angels were created sinless. All the angels were created perfect. You and I were born sinners, right? We were born sinners. And then we got saved and we became righteous. Because we received the righteousness of Jesus Christ when we got saved. Is that true in, in, in every case here? We were born sinners in Adam. We believed in Jesus Christ. We were made righteous. This, this guy, though, Chotham Taknith, the other way around. He wasn't born. He was created. He was created righteous. He was created perfect. But then unrighteousness was found in you. God didn't create it, but it was generated as a part of his pride. It was generated as an expression of his rejection of the will of God. And so from, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until 
unrighteousness was found in you. And when that was exposed and demonstrated, from that moment on, he was a fallen creature on public display to the whole cosmos as a fallen creature. And a third of the angels went with him, by the way. Revelation 12 says his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven. One third of the angels followed after Satan's rebellion. But keep in mind, they did so in their own volition. They did so when they, because they wanted to, not because they were born in, in Satan like we're born in Adam. Okay? There are no generations of angels. Every fallen angel chose to be a fallen angel. We'll discuss that as well. That's key in Hebrews chapter 2. So, specifically declared to have a day of his creation. So do you remember your creation day? If you were a created, I believe Adam remembered his creation day. He was created an adult male. All right. But none of us do remember the day of our birth. Now, this father and son dynamic it is a past and present reality with a future prophecy. There's a past and present reality that today I have begotten you. Um, I skipped over it. I should pay attention. Psalm 2 and verse 7. It is so key. How many times does Psalm 2, 7 get repeated in, uh, in Hebrews? All right. Again and again, it's today, today, today. Today I have begotten thee. Today I have, you are my son. Today I have begotten thee. The emphasis for our Sabbath rest is centered on today. Day after day, as long as it is called today. And that that link of today, it centers on the Father, Son, and it centers on our rest in the plan of God. We need to have that mental attitude rest in the plan of God. Day after day, as long as it's called today. But Psalm 2, that enthronement psalm that speaks of Jesus Christ and His millennial kingdom, but it goes back to the foundation of the earth. Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. When was today? When, what day was this? Today. The first day ever. The first day that could be called a day because before the beginning of Christ, it's eternity past with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternal fellowship one with another. But as soon as the Son is begotten, now there's something new. Something that did not exist before. That begotten humanity of Jesus Christ. And now there's a today. Now there is a today because now everything else comes after. And we have, now we have a dimension of before and after and since that we didn't have in eternity past. So, Psalm 2-7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He didn't just say it, it was a decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. Understand, the inheritance of the Son is bigger than the inheritance of Israel. It's bigger than the inheritance of the throne of David. In the millennium, he sits on the throne of David. He's got boundaries beyond which are not his, beyond which are Gentiles. But in the new heavens and new earth, he gets everything. He gets the Jews and the Gentiles. He gets the ends of the earth as his possession. Ask of me, I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. So there's a past uh, reality. There's a present reality. There's a future prophecy. And that future prophecy is vested in the greater son of David. So there's a reason why. There's a reason why in Hebrews 1.5 we're taking... Uh, Psalm 2-7, and we're blending it together with 1 Chronicles 17-13. There's a reason why the author of Hebrews is doing that, taking that beginning of the humanity of Christ and then connecting it eschatologically with the promises made to David. It's so powerful. The, uh, so vested in the greater son of David, Hebrews 1-5, we're comparing it to 1 Chronicles 17-13, First uh, Chronicles twenty two ten, Psalm eighty nine. We already read much of Psalm eighty nine already this morning. Did myself a favor by uh, jumping ahead with that. Okay. The um, let's look at this. Let's look at First Chronicles seventeen. Well, we're hitting everything, aren't we? First Chronicles. Get before Esther, get before Job. First and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles. First Chronicles 17, 13. 
you want a parallel for this, you'll find it in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I just think it's more vivid and, and the details here fit better with um, Hebrews 1.5. This father-son dynamic. The, uh, the blessings that Jesus is. He is the son of God. He is the son of man. He is the son of David. Okay? And all of this comes together in prophecy in what will be the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ and then the new heavens and new earth in the dispensation of the fullness of time. And there's a realm of teaching here that I want us to, to embrace. I want us to, to, to know it for what it is, to get it, to thrive in it. You know, I, I don't understand. Some, some Christians are bored with prophecy. To me, it's, it's, it's a thrill. It's an absolute thrill to know where the Father's taking us and what, what we're destined to. We are looking for the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells because that's what the Father's looking to. He's looking to that. We should be looking to that. All right, so 1 Chronicles 17. Um, David wants to build a temple. And, um, and it's not a bad idea, okay? It's not a bad idea that he wants to do. And Nathan says, hey, it's a good idea. In 17.2, Nathan says to David, do all that is in your heart for God is with you. If you are a believer in the word of God and intimate with the Lord, then you can trust that those desires he's given you, they're being shaped by him. And if you're wrong, he'll point that out. <laughs> Don't feel like you can accidentally stumble into something. He'll overrule. The overruling will of God will keep you out of, out of, out of trouble. But if he lays it on your heart to do something and it's being shaped by the teaching and it's shaped by your intimacy with the Lord... As Nathan says here, hey, go and do it. And, uh, but then the Lord intervenes and he, he makes sure that Nathan stops the process. And, and it's a great idea, just one generation too early. Okay? That's very human to try to do stuff too soon. And uh, God says, no, your son's going to do this. And when your day, uh, verse 11 of 1 Chronicles 17, when your days are fulfilled, that you must go to be with your fathers. I will set up one of your descendants after you who will be of your sons and I will establish his kingdom. And this is the nature of it. So he's speaking of Solomon, but he's speaking of Jesus. And there's a a duality here in this. And this is what happens. Humanity is generation to generation to generation. That's what humanity is designed to do. Verse 12, he shall build for me a house and I will establish his throne forever. Are we talking about Solomon or are we talking about Jesus? Okay. Both, actually. I will be his father, he will be my son. I will not take away my loving kindness away from him as I took it away from him who was before you. You know, what's his name? Okay, Saul was before David. We know that, but just name isn't written down here. All right. I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. And so we have some, some beautiful things here. And, and neat, Solomon benefited from this prophecy, by the way, because uh, the end of his life was a train wreck. But God did not let the Civil War come until Rehoboam, until the next generation. Because God had used Solomon in the, in the dual prophecy here to paint what the faithfulness of Christ was going to be all about. And so Solomon builds the temple. Jesus will build the millennial temple. Uh, Solomon is the, is the son of David, the son of blessing. Jesus is the son of David, the son of blessing. And even though the Solomon dies the sin unto death with you know, a thousand women and who knows what kind of venereal disease, but he uh, dies the sin unto death and yet does not have the kingdom ripped away from him, not until Rehoboam's generation, okay? Because of this prophecy. He's a picture of, of Christ in, the, in, uh, in, in glory, Christ in, in reigning in peace. I will settle him in my house, in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. And so this is the, this is the impact of it. And this is why the title Son of David is so powerful. And why when the, the, the blind are crying out, Son of David, have mercy on us, that he would do those miracles to heal them. And they had every expectation that the Messiah is the Son of David, the one that heals, the one that will reign. And, uh, and all of these expectations coming to them from Scripture. Okay? And those that were humble for it saw it when Jesus walked this earth. Those that were arrogant hated it and rejected it in terms of Pharisees and, and the like. 
Still in the first Chronicles 22.10. And here's um, Solomon building the, uh, uh, David's dying, and he's going to charge Solomon now to, uh, to build this temple. David said to Solomon, my son, I intended to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, you have shed much blood. You have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. And so he's going to take two generations to paint this picture. David paints the conquering picture. Solomon reigns the, paints the picture of the king of peace. Behold, a son will be born to you who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from his enemies on every side. For his name shall be Solomon. I will give him peace and quiet to Israel all his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son. I will be his father. Now see, this is a promise. Is he David's son or is he God's son? Both. He shall be my son. I will be his father. There will be a dynamic between the father and the son in the millennial kingdom and in the fullness of time. Where he will not only... You know, there's a lot of fathers that are not fathers. You know what I'm talking about? There's a lot of biological fathers that don't father as a verb. Okay? But here's the father that's going to father as a verb. While the son is a son as a verb. And the father fathers and the son sons. And together... They love one another, they exalt one another, they serve one another. It's a powerful dynamic. And Jesus tried to get that across in his first advent. He said, I and the Father are one. And they started grabbing stones to kill him because they thought it was blasphemy. It's not blasphemy, it's doctrine, it's beautiful. And so the past and present reality, yes, he's already begotten, okay? You know, Making babies is easy, but raising babies, I mean, being a father, right? All right. So the past and present reality with a future prophecy, and this dynamic between the father and the son, it's going to be all throughout the millennial kingdom, all throughout the fullness of time. When the fullness of time is complete, what's the son going to do? He's going to deliver up the kingdom back to the father, that God may be all in all, because of this dynamic right here. So, uh, it's First Chronicles 22.10. And, uh, and then, of course, Psalm 89. We spent a lot of time in Psalm 89 already. All right. Back to Hebrews then. So, we have the prologue in verses 1 through 4. Jesus is awesome. He came to earth. He did everything. He went back to the Father. He's got a new name. He's seated at the Father's right hand. Verse 6, And when He again brings the firstborn into the world... Oh, wait a minute. Jesus has more to do. The firstborn is coming back into the world. Okay, The firstborn has already been in the world once. First Advent. But when He again brings the firstborn into the world... He says, let all the angels of God worship Him. There's a future reality for the angels. We already saw that they're expected to worship Him now. They were expected to worship Him when Psalm 29 was written. They were expected to worship Him when Psalm 89 was written. They've always been designed to worship Him. But at Second Advent, that worship is, is mandated, that worship is required. It's, it's ramped up because of this new name, this new glory. When he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. All of them. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. So we got more scriptures being brought in here. Psalm 97, Psalm 104. Um, Psalm 45, the enthronement psalm, Isaiah 61. All right, let's look at some of these things. Let's look at verse 6. Understand, the first advent of Jesus Christ, when He came in first advent, was it to rule? Did He come as a king? Did He come to conquer? No. The first advent of Jesus Christ was for Him to serve and not be served. 
for him to serve and not be served. He was worthy of worship being God. He didn't diminish. He wasn't, he didn't lay aside deity. He's still God, but he's not demanding the worship that he's entitled to in second advent. I think Jesus is humble enough to realize he has not yet done the work of first advent. He's not entitled to the second advent worship until he's faithful to the, to the, to the cross. First advent of Jesus Christ was for him to serve and not to be served. You know, in Gethsemane, or on his way to Gethsemane, he has a prayer, it's, it's in John 17, and he says, Father, restore to me the glory that I had with you before the world was. And the Father answers, there's an even greater glory that's yet that's coming. You're going to get that glory back. There's an even greater glory that you're going to have because of this, because of first advent, because of your faithfulness. The angels already worship. They're going to worship even more. They're going to worship for even greater, greater purposes, okay? With a greater dimension of, of recognition because of what Jesus accomplishes in this first advent. What the God-man accomplishes, no angel could accomplish. All right. And that pattern becomes important as well. That's all throughout the New Testament, throughout Hebrews, why we want to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so he can exalt us to the proper time. You know, Satan's mode was, who needs to humble yourself? Just exalt yourself now, right? You're awesome. I'm awesome. Exalt myself now. I should be more exalted because I'm more awesome than than God thinks I am. And so he exalts himself. Jesus didn't exalt himself, did he? He humbled himself. And that's the point. The, the, the resolution of the angelic conflict is the demonstration of humility over arrogance. Okay? And Christ is the, the victor in that. So, we have it here. And um, so when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Now that's Psalm 97. It's always been true. Angels have always been expected to worship Yahweh. Angels have always been expected to worship the God the Son, the second member of Trinity. But in the, in the millennium, when he comes again into the world, it's, uh, it's that much more. Okay? It becomes mandatory. It becomes, well, I'm not explaining this well. It's already mandatory. It's already expected. It's already, he's already entitled to it. But, when, but it's, it's demanded and expected, and it will happen. It'll happen globally. Um, think about it this way. Today, we don't see a lot of angels today because they're all invisible. But we're going to see them then. They're going to be visible to us then. They're going to be in the earth then. They're going to be worshiping Jesus Christ then. Can you imagine? How much fun is that going to be? Watching singing angels, singing the praises of Jesus Christ. All right. If you want the verses on the humility, there they are. Um, Matthew 20, verse 28. John 13 with the foot washing. It's a powerful chapter. Um, 2 Corinthians 8, 9 in, uh, in a way that the Corinthians had to learn. Um, Philippians 2, 7, which we're going to have coming up in the Kenosis chapter of our Philippians series, that Jesus emptied himself. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant. So uh, let's look at these. Matthew 20, 28. I realize a, a lot of these connect together so well with our Philippians series, but many folks here aren't in the Philippians series. So um, for those that uh, only attend second hour instead of both first and second hour, or if you don't come on Wednesday nights, then maybe uh, some of this is, is not going to be as familiar to you. Matthew 20 and verse 28. The, um, let's see. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is a fun chapter. I laugh. Um, this is when James and John try to, um, they try to score seats early, right? They're trying, to, they're trying to get glory ahead of time in the millennial kingdom. And they want to sit on the right and the left. And, and they get their mom in on it uh, to, to influence things, I guess. Um, I believe Salome was Mary's sister, and so who knows, whatever the family dynamic was there. But um, So uh, he says to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. Now keep in mind, this concept, this, is, this fills Hebrews about where we sit and why. 
And who sits where? That's, that's a dominant theme in Hebrews. To which of the angels did he say, sit at my right hand, right? So uh, trying to score seats. And, and Jesus says, I don't hand out seats, okay? You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am able to drink? Jesus himself was ready to drink that cup. He's going to go to the cross. If he doesn't drink that cup, then Jesus doesn't get the seat he's supposed to get. And they said, oh yeah, we can do that. We're able. Just like Peter. I'll never deny you, Lord. I'll go, I'll die for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said to them, okay, you will. You will be martyred. My cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and my left, this is not mine to give. It is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. So keep that in mind. That's why I don't mind taking a little extra time to explain that here this morning. It's the Father that assigns the seating. Jesus himself didn't pick his own seat out. The Father gave him his seat. So hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. And and I think they were indignant because they didn't think of the idea first. (laughs) Right? They probably would have done the same thing. And Jesus said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. The great men exercise authority over them. But it's not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. The real heroes in the church age are the servants. The ones that serve their brothers and sisters in Christ. The greatest rewarded believers we'll ever meet, we're going to see them at the Bema, we're going to drool over the, the, the gold, silver, and precious stones, and we will have never heard of them on this earth. They're not in the history books, they're not in the church history books. Okay? They're the prayer warriors, the little old ladies, the faithful Sunday school teachers, the, the invisible warriors. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Are you willing to lay down your life? There's no greater love. Okay, That's what we're expected to do. John 13, I won't turn there, that's the foot washing chapter, but he says, I gave you an example. If I wash your feet, why are you so prideful to not do stuff like that? Uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9. You might recall from our 2 Corinthians series. Uh, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor so that you through His poverty might become rich. Spells it out right there. That's kenosis again from Philippians but spelled out in 2 Corinthians 8. Philippians 2, 7, He humbled Himself. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus who although He existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Here is the God-man, here is Jesus Christ, begotten of the Father, in the form of God. He's still disembodied, he has not yet humbled himself to the virgin birth and the incarnation, but he did. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man. And so God the Son, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son humbled himself in the womb of Mary. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's for this reason also. You see that in verse 9? If he does does not victorious on the cross, he does not get the glory that follows. It's for this reason also. It's causative. It's the reason why. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. He inherits a greater name than any angel. We saw that already. Finally then, Hebrews 9.28. Concept that comes back again in Hebrews, way back in chapter 9. But a good verse, I think, that, that describes the difference between first advent and second advent. So Christ also... There's a lot that's here. Um... You know, the, the, that Old Testament priesthood, they, they would just do it again and again and again and again, okay? Passover, Pentecost, Day of Atonement. Passover, Pentecost, Day of Atonement. Here we go again. Passover, Pentecost, Day of Atonement. Again and again and again and again. But Christ, once and for all, okay? Once and for all. Um, to appear in the presence of God for us. And um, 
Verse 26 says, He would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once, at the consummation of the ages, He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment, so also Christ. Okay? So also Christ. In fact, take that and disprove reincarnation every time. Okay? If a Hindu thinks he can do it, do it again, do it again, do it again until he gets it right. No, you do it once. Okay? One life, one judgment, there you go. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await Him. He's coming back again. When He again brings the firstborn into the world, let all the angels of God worship Him. He's coming back. And first time He came back, and the first time was in humility to serve, second time He's coming to reign, to be worshipped, to, uh, to exercise that father-son dynamic for global worship. Men and angels alike will be worshiping Him. When the Father sends Jesus Christ to earth for His second advent, universal human and angelic worship will be required. Guess what? In the second advent, there will not be separation of church and state. There will be required worship of Jesus Christ, the King, the God-man on the throne when the Father sends Jesus Christ to earth for His second advent, universal human and angelic worship will be required. Today in the church, that's not the case. Today in the church, worship as you please or don't worship. Serve Christ or reject Him. We preach Christ and you can accept Him or reject Him. And if you reject Him and you're living a life that's contrary to Scripture, we're not forcing you to live a Scripture or a way of life. You've rejected Christ. Second Advent, though, it's a whole new game. Guess what? Worship is required. The angels are going to lead that worship in there, in this uh, angelic call. Again, Hebrews 1.6, related to Deuteronomy 32.43, especially the Septuagint reading there, I think it's the accurate Hebrew reading. And then uh, Psalm 97.7. Did we also see that one? Yes, we did. No, we didn't. Yes, we did. No, we didn't. All right. Goodness, I'm, I'm out of time. Um, let me just show you what Deuteronomy doesn't say and show you where it should say it. If you have a... Um, by the way, it's, it's why it's worth having not only a, an Old Testament in your favorite Bible translation, but also have a Septuagint in English translation. It's also useful in reading and seeing them side by side where you can recognize the Septuagint has some differences than the, uh, the, the uh, Hebrew Masoretic text. Deuteronomy 32.43. Um, yeah. So where it says um, we got conflict, we got war, we got blood, we got swords, we got captives, we got long-haired leaders of the enemy. And then we have rejoice, O nations, with His people. Before you get to that phrase, rejoice, O nations, with His people, there is a phrase for the angels. Rejoice, Beneha Elohim, sons of God. Rejoice, and it's in the angelic realm. And so the angels are called to worship and the humans are called to worship. For he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries and atone for his land and his people. So that's what Deuteronomy 32.43 should say. And then finally, Psalm 97.7. Psalm 97.7. Alright, I know this is a lot of back and forth. I know this is a lot of... Uh, and, and just... We'll get better at it, okay? Because Hebrews is full of, of Psalms, it's full of, of Chronicles, it's full of uh, Deuteronomy, okay? Psalm 97. Um, you can think of verses 1 through 6, maybe, uh, as, as being prophetic, looking ahead to the tribulation, because there's uh, fire and burning up adversaries, lightning. The earth is trembling, the mountains are melting like wax uh, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare His righteousness. All the peoples have seen His glory. The great tribulation is going to be amazing, especially when all the stars fall out of the sky. And there's only one star left, the sign of the Son of God. And then it starts growing and growing and growing and growing as Jesus is getting closer and closer and closer and closer and all of the unbelievers of this world are trying to go underground and hide and they're, they're just losing it. Okay? 
Verse 7, let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all you gods. And he calls these angels gods. He calls them theoi, gods, okay? Or Elohim in the Hebrew, okay? And, and this is why angels become visible in the millennium. I believe God permanently displays every, the, 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 every idolatry that humans have been following up to the millennium. He makes those angels visible. He says, here, these are the angels you were worshiping as gods. And watch what they're doing. They're worshiping Jesus Christ. Kind of fun to think about. All right. Well, we've got to start on it. There's a lot more. Old, he, uh, Old Testament text, Old Testament text, Old Testament text, Old Testament text. And the author of Hebrews is bringing them all together. He's weaving them in a, in a tapestry. And he's exemplifying what he said in the prologue. What he said in verses 1 through 4. Jesus is the celebrity. The Father has centered everything in him. That's what we're looking forward to. Shall we pray? Father, I do thank you for this message. And we've got so much more to cover. And some of it, Father, is not easy. The author of Hebrews says it's not easy. And says if you're dull of hearing, you can't handle any of this stuff. But Father, we're calling upon you. We want to understand it for what it is. We want to embrace it. We want to thrive in this, Father. We want to have the same excitement, the same eagerness that you have. Father, you have never lost sight of your goal. You have uh, done all that you've done with a view to a dispensation suitable to the fullness of times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ. You've never lost track of what you've set in motion from eternity past. And I pray that we would likewise keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. I pray, Father, that we would be looking like you are to the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. That we would understand the millennium for what it is and for the new heavens and new earth for what they are. So, Father, uh, make these things clear to us as they are intended to be made clear to the Hebrews in the book of Hebrews. Father, I continue to bless this study and, uh, and encourage each one of us, Father, if, uh, if anyone's starting to think that, that this is too deep or too dull or too Old Testament, that, Father, this is real. And you can, uh, you can explain it to each one of us in the simplest of ways. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.